This is a Federal News Network podcast. When it comes to technology, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has always been something of a unicorn. The agency has about 95% of its online applications in the cloud already. It was on the Zero Trust journey well before there was a bandwagon. Rob Brown is USCIS Chief Technology Officer. At the ACT-IAC conference earlier this week in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Brown told Federal News Network's Jason Miller about plans to break new technology ground by hiring a director of user experience. We actually started this journey of creating a position description at uh, USCIS, DHS, for a director of UX. The primary uh, reason and outcome was actually driven uh, by working with some of my colleagues, specifically Mike Land and the USDS team, as well as just the general needs that we had at USCIS. So making it, again, this is first class, making somebody responsible so they could actually be uh, responsible for UX, responsible for actual collateral like generative research, actually being responsible for a design system and holding folks accountable, creating a good COE so we would actually have CX and UX across the organization as opposed to in silos and sporadic pockets here and there. The reason behind it, where the the ideas came from, so it's actually taken us about a year and a half just to have this position classified, and now it's been about a month on the street, and ultimately the mission goal here is, as we've just already talked about today, is to better serve our customers. You got a question today at ELC 2022 regarding where should a UX CX person sit? And remind me what you said, should they sit CIO's office, somewhere else's office, and why? So I agree with the, the sort of the consensus of, of the discussion through the panel that it really should sit at the top of the organization. It shouldn't sit within OAT or within HR or whatever. Uh, it really needs to be, I believe, first and foremost, uh, at the top of the organization. At CIS, we do have that representation. We do have a special advisor that actually is working with the director, as well as working across all the various facets and stakeholders uh, as it relates to delivering CX, and then ultimately from an IT and uh, organization, the actual UX uh, components as well. So. Uh, that's really where I believe it belongs. And that this person, this director of UX, will not will look across the CFO, the HR, the missionaries. They'll have that kind of purview versus they're not just, just a quote-unquote, a technology person. The director of UX that I'm referring to as it relates to USCS is within US, the OIT shop. And the responsibilities are as stated. As it relates to an organization, again, we need to have that representation at the highest level. So the, the director of UX, they will be responsible, they will have purview, and they will start to drive some of the standards and governance that are required to help make this change. As someone who's in the IT organization, they'll obviously work with your development teams and, and ensure there's data, because you guys at USCIS have been out in front among most agencies around driving change through development using DevSecOps, Agile. Is that part of the other reason why you said, okay, now is the right time to bring in someone to kind of be that UX director? It was the right time socially, culturally, and all those other sort of softer things that actually have real impact. But there was also enough wherewithal. There was enough skills. We started to see these burgeoning groups and pockets of folks doing good UX, creating their own design systems, um, creating their own artifacts, doing their own research. So to me, from an enterprise perspective, now is the time. We need to actually make sense. Let's start driving economies of scale. Let's reduce the redundancy. Let's start operating as a team. Let's start to create that COE. 
generally speaking, USCIS is kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of things. You guys were first out the gate with, with the idea of, of agile development, DevSecOps first to the cloud. Uh, I know I've talked to your colleague Shane Barney several times about getting to zero trust first. Is this another one where you are ahead of the curve or are you seeing some of this other people within DHS or outside of DHS CIO offices starting to really look at, hey, do we need a director of UX or however title they're going to call it? It's great to be ahead of the curve. It's great to lead the front end. So it's always nice to hear those things. This position, this responsibility is table stakes these days. I don't think we're ahead. I think we might have been a tip and a blip. And, but I do really believe that um, based upon other colleagues that work at DHS HQ under the CIO and the mandates that the White House is, has uh, discussed, it's, it, this is really going to be table stakes. I want to switch because the, the related to this is the idea of data. And you mentioned this use of a data lake, creating, gathering data and then making it useful. Can you just walk me through that program a little bit? Is this something that you guys have been working on for several years? Is this more of a newer kind of program in terms of using data, I imagine, to drive decisions? So really it's a looking at you know the uh, data as a product, ultimately. And then what does that really mean? What are the facets and components of that? So really we started with an antiquated uh, data warehousing technology discussed here today some of those challenges that existed, the, the creation of all these locally developed apps that were really based upon, you know, how do we deal with data? A lot of it was, the outcome technology-wise was access databases, not very secure, not very user-friendly, and at the end of the day, it really just um, should have been deprecated a long time ago. Uh, so moving forward, we did make an investment in technology to start to build a data lake house. So we could aggregate all the data in real time with essentially the pipes uh, and other investment technology that would connect to source systems to pull that data, again, in real time and to some, to some degree relevant time is another interesting term. So with that, essentially it's broken out into, again, sort of raw, semi-curated and curated data manifested then and data marts. So data products that could be used by various facets of the organization. So they can get real-time access to all of that data in a nice clean manner, what they would plug into, again, homogenized across the organization, a visualization data tool, where they can now go and do their own analytics, business intelligence, things of that ilk. As opposed to before, again, very disparate, very rogue, all over the place, data moving all over the place. Now it's almost like just offering another cloud service for all of our employees. So again, democratizing all the data with the right safety in place, the right security in place. And this is something specific for any one mission area or any like HR or finance or is this data that anyone with the right access right abilities can get to then can say can they can maybe ask a question against the data and then help answer questions that maybe they didn't know they had no absolutely it's it's of course with the right role-based access the right reason for access to that data of course it's going to provide the capability for just as you stated the ability to get meaningful information gain insight into that all of that data and so from a tech perspective, the more data that we can get into it and the more tooling we can put on top of it, we're going to get more meaningful information. We're at a stage now from a maturity perspective where we're starting to build some of those data dictionaries, looking at how we manifest data catalogs and ultimately start to drive lineage back down to the sources as we look at data across all, all the data, across all those data sources. So to me, that's an element of, of maturity. Another phase of moving forward is it's great, that's our, our own data, but we do have a lot of business partners, other DHS components. So we are in the foray of moving forward with uh, and in production now with modern integration to start to build out truly the technology of the day or keyword tech of the day is data mesh. But ultimately, how do you make that happen? 
So we're actually moving forward with uh, doing Delta Share, essentially like a zero copy vis-a-vis an API to cloud-to-cloud data exchange with CBP and others, as well as looking in non-prod at this stage and looking at um, federating Kafka clusters so we can actually do real-time eventing between organizations as well. So if we think about actually that data mesh within just the DHS ecosystem, now we can actually do a heck of a lot more. And we expand that beyond just DHS with our other business partners. A good example would be the ability to start to look at non-USCs and identity. Rob Brown is the Chief Technology Officer at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. We'll post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, 
And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, so he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, 
I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.